Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I think just moving forward from the things that uh, were unfortunate in the year is the best way to uh, uh, respond to it. That was Chief Justice John Roberts' response to last term, one of the most tumultuous in the Supreme Court's history. It included the unprecedented leak of the draft opinion that ultimately overturned the constitutional right to abortion, ethical scandals, protest after protest, criticism of the court by some of the justices themselves, and public confidence in the court sinking to an all-time low. Speaking at the Tenth Circuit's conference in September, the chief justice said he did have one concern— that the criticism of controversial opinions was wrongly calling into question the legitimacy of the court. I don't understand the connection between opinions that people disagree with and the legitimacy of the court. Uh, If the court doesn't uh, uh, retain its legitimate function of interpreting the Constitution, um, I'm not sure who would. But oddly... The chief justice didn't mention any concerns or controversies in his year-end report on the federal judiciary. Its blandness was a stark contrast to the year at the court. My guest is constitutional law expert Stephen Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas Law School. He wrote about the chief's report in his weekly newsletter on the court called One First. This report was most remarkable for what it didn't say about 2022 being this tumultuous year at the court. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the year-end report, at least as it was originally conceived by Chief Justice Warren Berger, was meant to be a bit more of a sober and transparent reflection on not necessarily individual decisions, June, but on the work of the court and on places where the court specifically and the federal courts in general could benefit from potential legislative reforms. And I think what we saw in this year's report, which has been true, I think, for most of Chief Justice Roberts' year-end reports, is really very little of that. No reflection on where the court is as an institution, no reflection on potential places where changes might benefit the judiciary, really just not much more than an anecdote and a thank you to Congress for legislation that already passed about judicial security. It seems odd to me that he opened with the historical event about the judge who presided over efforts to desegregate Little Rock Central High School. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but he's using that at a time when the court is considering doing away with affirmative action. And it just strikes me as Ironic. 
<laughs> um, ironic is one word for it, sort of awkwardly time might be another. I mean, it's pretty typical for Chief Justice Roberts to have some kind of parable that is sort of the motif for his year-end report. I think it's interesting that the one he chose this year about Judge Davies and his efforts to desegregate the Little Rock schools from the way Roberts pitched it was about judicial courage and about the ability and the responsibility of federal judges to, as he put it, stand up to the mob. But which mob is he worried about? This is why it's such an interesting and sort of strange message to choose to send at the end of a year like 2022. From his perspective, is the mob, you know, the large, aggressive reaction to decisions like Dobbs and Bruin and West Virginia versus EPA? Is the mob actually the sort of the far right and its efforts to overturn the 2020 election? And so I think part of what's exasperating about reports like these is that, you know, there's lots of subtext, but what the subtext is, is itself subjective and can mean different things to different readers, as opposed to what Chief Justice Berger had originally intended, which is not subtext, but actually context and, you know, advancing a conversation with the other branches about how to improve judicial administration and judicial decision-making. And that's just not what the report has become. And this year, I think, is really another good example of that. And you point out that Chief Justice Rehnquist actually made front-page headlines in 1997 with his year-end report, which is hard to imagine nowadays. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing to look back on. So this was at the end of 1997, and Chief Justice Rehnquist used his year-end report really to excoriate the Republican-controlled Senate, which had basically stopped even holding hearings on and holding votes on a number of President Bill Clinton's judicial nominees. And even though, you know, the politics of this seems sort of odd, right, Rehnquist was a dyed-in-the-wool conservative Republican, I think that was actually a really good example of what this report could be and should be, which is the Chief Justice of the United States actually criticizing members of his own party in the political branches for acting in a way that, from his perspective, was undermining the judiciary. It was front-page news. It had an impact. The logjam for Clinton's nominees actually breaks later in 1998. And I think that tune is exactly what the report could be and hasn't been, which is the chief justice actually standing up for the judiciary, as opposed to the chief justice sort of, you know, just modestly thanking Congress as if it's Oliver Twist asking for more food. And it was Chief Justice John Roberts who changed the nature of these reports. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, his first couple of terms, Chief Justice Roberts largely followed in the footsteps of Chief Justice Rehnquist. But starting with his 2009 report, he really moved away from this model of, you know, identifying areas for reform, identifying potential problems that Congress might help fix. The 2009 report, the substance of it is, is less than a page long. And, you know, that's been really the vibe for each of the last 13 years. June last year's report, which I actually think might be the most remarkable in this series, the 2021 report, actually identifies three major issues that were screaming out for a congressional reform and says, don't worry, we've got this. <laughs> so, you know, I think part of the concern here is whatever one's politics and whatever one thinks of the courts, you know, with respect to its substantive decision making, what the chief justice's approach to these reports really bespeaks is a kind of judicial insularity that I think is not remotely healthy for, you know, the separation of powers in general and for the relationship between the courts 
and the political branches specifically. That was sort of my next question. Does the report echo the way Roberts views the role of the court and the other branches? You know, the court is separate. I think it surely does. And I think that's a problem. You know, we should not think of the Supreme Court as above and apart from the separation of powers in our federal system is an integral player in the separation of powers. And so, you know, I think it's no doubt a fair summary of both this year's report and most of you know, the chief justices last 13, that they reflect this kind of we are over here off on our own, leave us alone, we'll be fine mentality that I actually think is really, really problematic in the long term for the institutional health of the judiciary, for public perception of the legitimacy of the judiciary, and, you know, for the reality that even though we don't want the courts to be partisan, it's inevitable that they are at least to some degree political. And the more we try to pretend that isn't true, I think the more we are spinning a fiction about what judges do. What was glaringly missing, there was no mention of the leak of the draft opinion in the Dobbs case and the investigation that Roberts had ordered into the leak more than seven months ago. I guess I, I'm not surprised there's no mention of it in the report. I'm a little surprised there's been no mention of it anywhere else, for that matter. But I think, June, it's a symptom of this broader disease, which is that there are pretty significant issues affecting the Supreme Court that are unrelated to the substance of specific decisions. And by not engaging with those issues, by not addressing those issues. What the year-end report does is it says one of two things is true. Either the chief justice doesn't agree that these are serious issues worthy of conversation and study, or you know he agrees that they're serious issues, but he doesn't think that the political branches should have any role in discussing or responding to them. And you know, June, I don't know which of those two things is an accurate description of where the chief justice is. I think they're both problematic in separate but, you know, equally important respects. Steve, the chief always likes to separate the Supreme Court from the political branches, the Supreme Court from politics. And yet you have a court that seems to be more entwined with politics than ever before. You had Justice Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, being called to Capitol Hill to testify before the January 6th committee. You had the New York Times report that Justice Alito had leaked a prior opinion to conservative interests, which Alito, of course, denied. Well, not only that, you know, and this is not just about the conservatives. 2022 alone, three different justices, I think it was Thomas, Sotomayor, and Jackson, had to amend prior financial disclosures because of omissions, in some cases pretty serious omissions, about income from prior years. That's a big deal that ought to bother all of us, right? The extent to which the Supreme Court is still not bound by the same ethics code that binds every other federal judge in the country, that's a big deal, especially with all of the, you know, Jenny Thomas stuff that's out in the ether. And so, you know, folks are going to disagree about which of these issues is most important. I just don't know how anyone can look at the Supreme Court and say everything is you know, hunky-dory at one first street. And, you know, my concern is that the more that the year-end report leaves folks with that impression, when we all know it's not true, I think the more useless that report becomes, but worse than that, the more it actually perpetuates this narrative that the court just can't be bothered to recognize that, you know, something is rotten in Denmark. Well, don't you think the chief justice 
since 2012 has been working to make this report something of no consequence to anyone. I mean, who really waits for the chief justice's report to come out? I think that's exactly right. I mean, the answer to your question is the Supreme Court press corps is uh-huh. who waits for the report to come out, right? And I think, yes, he has tried very hard to make the report something of no consequence, even as the procedural and ethical and logistical challenges facing the Supreme Court and facing the entire federal judiciary have only mounted. And that, to me, is a disconnect that ought to be troubling, even to folks who are generally sympathetic to where the court is on the merits. I mean, keep in mind, June, this is not the Chief Justice's year-end report on the Supreme Court. It's his year-end report on the federal judiciary. And, you know, the notion that in three and a half pages of mostly empty blather and anecdote, the Chief Justice has fully conveyed all of the challenges facing the entire federal judiciary is, frankly, I think, laughable on its face. The closest Roberts came to addressing the criticism of the court's controversial decisions was when he said, quote, judicial opinions speak for themselves and there is no obligation in our free country to agree with them. Basically saying, so public, you get everything you need to know by reading our opinions. And we don't need to explain ourselves beyond that. There's no universe in which we would look at any other institution and say that the only relevant conversation involves the ultimate work product it produces, right? We would never say that the only thing worth talking about when it comes to Congress is the actual legislation that actually passes, as opposed to like the mechanics, the internal processes, you know, the ethics. And so I guess what this really does is it just perpetuates this idea that when it comes to public discussion of and political branch involvement in the work of the federal judiciary, nothing matters except the decision. And that's a mentality that I think is really myopic. It's not one that has been the sort of historical characterization of how we've approached these questions. And I think it's one that really obfuscates what are, I think, some undeniable, June, non-substantive problems with the nature of the Supreme Court and the federal courts today writ large, problems that, frankly, I think there might even be some consensus about fixing if we could actually have the conversation in ways that were honest and transparent, and a report like this does nothing to further that. Steve, I'm beginning to think we are not going to find out where the league came from, not because they haven't found out, but that they're just not going to tell us. If you'd asked me, gosh, last July, I think I would have predicted this exact <laughs> denouement, right? I mean, this always had all of the hallmarks of a, you know, don't worry, trust us, we've got this under control. And we can think of reasons why we're never going to find out. Perhaps the Chief Justice did not like the answer when they figured out who the leaker was. Perhaps they really haven't figured out who the leaker was. I mean, whatever it is, you know, I think anyone who thought this was going to be some big public thing, I think, didn't fully appreciate how little it is in the Supreme Court's interest to perpetuate the conversation about leaks and its internal decision-making processes. Always a pleasure, Steve. Thank you. That's Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. You can subscribe to his weekly newsletter on the court by going to stevevladek.substack.com. You're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. 
The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Nearly two years after New York legalized recreational marijuana, New York City's first legal retail weed shop opened its doors to the public in Lower Manhattan on December 29th at Housing Works, a nonprofit that helps New York's homeless and HIV-positive population. The venture will be a key test of New York's highly regulated adult-use marijuana industry, which will face legal and illegal competition, supply chain challenges, and high taxes. Joining me is Jason Little, who heads the cannabis practice team at Farrell Fritz. Is New New York's law, New York's regimen, is it highly regulated compared to other states? Is it similar to other states? New York's law is highly regulated. Um, as are other states. So New Jersey is highly regulated, Massachusetts is highly regulated, California and Colorado are highly regulated. The material difference with New York's law, as opposed to the others I just mentioned, is that New York built in an element of social equity in the licensing process, and they decentralized the ability to run all of the different types of practice. So there's no vertical integration in New York, meaning that If you hold a retail license, as a general matter, you can't hold a cultivating license. And as a general matter, you can't hold a distributorship license. So you can't have one entity that runs all of the different phases and aspects of the cannabis business in New York. And that differentiates New York, and it also makes it a little bit more difficult to get it off the ground. So now in New York, there's this preference for justice-involved individuals in giving out licenses. What does that mean? Well, what that means on the front end, and one of the policies behind MRTA, the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, was to, A, decriminalize marijuana and cannabis in the state of New York and and to bring in some of the folks that have been negatively affected by that and to give them opportunities, uh, business opportunities within this new law. And that's what that is aimed to do. So there's two prongs of it, really, right? You have to be a justice-involved individual which means you have to have a criminal conviction in the state of New York for 
a marijuana or cannabis-related crime. The second element of that is you have to have some sort of business background, and you have to be able to prove that business background to New York to be able to get one of these initial, what they call, QR licenses. Do they have a lot of applications, and how is the processing going? Well, they had, I believe, over 900 but under 1,000 QR applicants, which is pretty good. They issued 36 QR licenses, I believe, in November, and those are the first ones that have the ability to get up and running from the dispensary side. And that's just the retail dispensary side. So there's other different types of licenses that, that don't follow that same pattern with QR. But right now, there's 36, I believe, QR licensees, all of whom are justice-involved or non-for-profits that provide services to justice-involved individuals. So what do they have to have? They apply for this. Do they have to have lease space? I mean, how does it work? That's one of the headlines now. So the initial plan was that they would not have to have lease space, but that the state of New York would provide, through the Office of Cannabis Management, would provide essentially turnkey spaces for these uh, initial retail dispensaries and the applicants that were successful uh, getting those initial licenses. That has not happened for a couple of reasons, and without getting into the politics of it, they're not funded, and they're just not ready. So in an effort to get the the business actually kick-started uh, as we move into this new year, Office of Cannabis Management lifted that requirement. So the first of the dispensaries opened on the 29th of December in the East Village in Manhattan, Housing Works, and I'm fairly confident that they are in one of their own spaces. From a practical standpoint, and you know, and, and what I tell some of our Feral Fritz clients that have engaged in the QR licensing process, you know, as an initial matter, we were asking for the right and the ability to be able to use our own space. We always wanted to do that, and I think you know, I have a client in particular who I think could be ready and open within two to four weeks if they were granted a license. So I think as we move forward into the new year, into the first couple of months, I think we're going to start seeing those retail stores come online. Office of Cannabis Management is doing a rolling application process. So of those 900 and something applicants, a bunch of those applicants will actually end up with licenses. They're just going to do them in batches. And they've done that with the cultivation licenses over the last numerous months. So we've seen how that looks with, you know, anywhere from 10 to 15 of them getting approved per office cannabis meeting each month. So that's that's kind of how that brought, that licensing process is going to look. Do they have to approve the lease space then, or the space that you're in? Is that part of the license application process? Here's where I'm going to put it. Yeah, for, for our clients in particular, yes. We, we had to identify where our lease space would be. There was a box to check on the application that permitted you to say essentially you were going to use the space provided by the state of New York. I'm not familiar with how Office of Cannabis Management is going back to those licensees, but they're probably informally going back to those licensees and asking them if they have their own new space, and if so, where it is. Uh, And yes, they, they have to be approved. Your clients, what have they been saying about the licensing process? Where have they been having difficulties with it? That's actually a good question, June. Uh, you know, I have a cultivator client in particular, and, and, and he was one of the first farms to have a sprout in the state of New York and, and made headlines. 
He was one of the first folks to get a cultivator license when the conditionals came out. He was a hemp grower, and he runs what I like to call a boutique farm. Uh, and it worked out pretty well for him. There's issues attendant with that now, but, but that licensing process worked pretty smoothly for him. Um, I have processor license, license clients that have been approved. Some have not. Again, it's, it's went well, just slow. The Couard retail dispensary licenses are a little bit slow. I mean, they, they've taken several months to get off the ground. Um, it looks like they're going in the right direction and rolling now. But I, I think a whole bunch more of those applicants need to get their licenses and, and hopefully sooner than later so we can get the market off the ground. How many different kinds of licenses are there? Well, the major types of licenses are there's a cultivation licenses, there's a processing license, there's a delivery license, a distribution license, a retail license, and then I like to call it the craft beer license. It's the only license that allows you to vertically integrate, meaning that you get to essentially grow, process, and sell your own product, but that's in limited quantities. So again, it's not the Miller Lite of, of cannabis, it's the local craft brewery of cannabis. So this has been talked about for so long, but it seems as if sometimes they're making regulations, you know, as they go along. There's a new regulation that allows license holders to begin deliveries of retail cannabis before their storefronts are open for business. So are they doing this sort of as it comes along? A little bit, right, and a little bit out of necessity, June. So that's a pretty good question. I think because it's taken so long to get it off the ground, and again, for good reasons in part, New York has placed emphasis on not having a vertically integrated system and allowing people who have been negatively impacted by the, the criminalization of marijuana to have an ability to get into this market. By doing that, it's been slow. They've created it from step one and it's had to have occurred in, in steps. So I think what they're doing is doing what they can as problems come up. Now we have growers who have cultivated product. We have processors who are taking that product and processing it, but we don't have retail dispensaries. <laughs> we have one now. Then we don't have the delivery licenses out. So we got to find ways to get this to consumers, and that's a stopgap. With respect to the regulations, that's an, an OCM conditional or temporary regulation. The final regulations are in public comment period right now, and that should end relatively soonly. So we actually will have final regulations uh, within the next month or two. So let's talk about the supply chain for cannabis and explain what this seed-to-sale tracking system is. Well, seed-to-sale tracking, let me actually do that from the perspective of one of my clients. So I have a cultivator client, and the Office of Cannabis Management has the ability to know what they're planting, where they're planting it, when it sprouts, and how they're maintaining that plant, right? So that level of, of, of control, and, and it's, a, it's a reporting obligation that my client has, and they're subject to inspection. Um, that same process happens both at the distributorship level, at the delivery level, and at the retail level. So they're able to track and control the, the, the quality and the integrity of the product from the seed that's that's purchased to put in the ground all the way to the consumable product that's going to hit retail dispensaries. Under New York's law, cannabis is going to be taxed twice? Cannabis is going to be taxed twice. It's going to be taxed at the processor level for THC content, and it's going to be taxed again at the retail level 
as a sales tax. What's the situation with federal banking rules? The situation is legal entanglement. So as you surely know, June, cannabis remains a Schedule One controlled substance. So theoretically, interstate commerce of cannabis is illegal. Cannabis commerce in general is illegal. And banking, especially with respect to federally chartered banks, it's a risk that a lot of the banks from an individual standpoint are deciding not to make. Local banks, whether state chartered or not, federal credit unions are probably the most insulated, but it's essentially a cash business because from a matter of law, federally, it's illegal. So it's trying to operate as a cash business with limited finance options, which New York State tried to accommodate for uh, with the fund that was going to have turnkey leases. It's hard to get financing for a number of reasons, but, but most importantly, because you don't have a lot of banks on board. So what happened to New York State's effort there? The, the funds just weren't, weren't raised. And at some point, I think they will be. Um, OCM has said the funds weren't there and raised. Not that they won't be or can't be. Uh, they're just not right now. And they can't hold this process up. Tell me about that pending litigation that's preventing certain areas of the state from issuing licenses. Uh, essentially, and, and this is the, the, the Cliff Notes version, there's a group of folks who have sued. And what they have said is that they're out of state convictions for marijuana-related offenses should be considered for court applications, and that essentially it's illegal for New York to have a regime that makes only New York residents with New York crimes applicable for any particular license category. So far, there's been an injunction issued, and that court has essentially said that those seven regions are are shut down from the application approval process until this case plays through the courts. I believe the state just appealed that decision, and I don't know the status of that appeal, but I assume it'll be heard on an expedited basis, and, and they'll get a decision as to whether that injunction will remain, hopefully relatively soon. It just seems ironic that people are trying to prove they had convictions. Feral Fritz, you know, we, we've handled you know, some, some, some real estate matters and, and repurposing agricultural uh, lands out in Colorado, for instance. Some of our clients have repurposed agricultural lands in, in Colorado, to, to grow cannabis. So we're kind of familiar with that aspect of it. Litigation is going to happen. I think as these businesses come online, it's going to happen more and more. Just as with any very highly regulated industry, you know, you're going to get normal litigation. You're also going to get some challenges to OCM, their authority, and how they're doing things. And I don't think that that's uncommon or should be unexpected. It just threw a little bit of a wrench in, in the court process up front. And towns can opt out of this? Let's just use retail as an example because that's, that's, that's where this is going to play out. The towns, each town municipality has the ability to opt in to allowing retail dispensaries to operate within their municipality. If they opt in, then retail dispensaries can operate and they get the tax revenue, their proportion of it. If they opt out, there's, there's a challenge process that the applicants can go through. Um, but assuming they, they're unsuccessful, that, that town or municipality will not have retail dispensaries. It also will not share in any of the tax revenue. I, I pointed to dispensaries because that's one example of, of where a town cannot doubt. I have cultivator clients, town cannot doubt. So they're allowed to grow it on their agricultural land because um, they're not a dispensary. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about this industry. Thanks so much for being on the show. That's Jason Little, who heads the cannabis practice team at Farrell Fritz. 
And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.